0: Welcome to Linux Action News, our weekly take on Linux and the open source world. This is episode 16, recorded on August 27th, 2017. I'm Chris. And I'm Joe. Hello, Joe. We have a lot to get to today, so let's jump right into it with some new hardware news from our friends over at the Ubuntu Budgie project. Yeah, they've teamed up with Nimbusoft, who are a UK-based,
1: well, Clevo reseller, let's face it. But let's move on from that. They're selling laptops and an all-in-one PC with Ubuntu Budgie preloaded, which is pretty good news. I hadn't even heard of Nimbusoft, so
0: good on them for doing this deal and making us aware of them. I hadn't heard of them either, and I was wondering, because they're UK-based, if perhaps you had. I, they also ship Ubuntu Mate systems as well as stock Ubuntu systems. You mentioned the Clevo thing. I actually want to touch on it just for a second because I think it does matter in this case. So you have an iMac-like system. There's also a couple of laptops, a 14.1-inch widescreen laptop as well as a 17.3-inch laptop. A nice thin one, though, 25 millimeters is actually pretty amazing for a 17.3. You, you mentioned Clevo, and I think it's important simply because... What it comes down to with these Clevo resellers is the implementation, how they do it, what research they do, the configuration of parts. And that's why I'd like to get the audience's feedback on Nimbusoft, if you guys have bought hardware from them, what your experience was. What do you think of the lineup, though, Joe, this all-in-one type machine that looks pretty slick, which is getting more and more popular, especially in office places, and then these two laptops? Well, the two laptops have kind of got
1: both bases covered. The the huge 17.3-inch desktop replacement, and then the 14.1-inch one that's kind of more aimed at tr- portability, but not the ultimate Ultrabook portability. It's kind of um, still big enough to do your work on, but you can still put it in a bag. So I think it's a reasonable selection. And um, one of them, the big one's got the GTX 950M card in it, which is, is powerful but it's not super, super powerful. It's kind of a good compromise. So yeah, all in all, I think it's a pretty good selection. It would be
0: nice if they also had an Ultrabook to go along with them. You mentioned the video cards, the GTX 950M. That's not so bad considering the price, 799 pounds, which is not bad, but none of these are overwhelmingly compelling to me. I would be more inclined to get an XPS 15 or an XPS 13. I do wish them luck, and I think this is great for the Ubuntu Budgie project. Okay, well, let's move on to another small Linux hardware company, this
1: time Purism. And this time, instead of a laptop, we're talking about a phone, the Librem 5, which is not just going to be the same old Android phone with a few modifications. This is going to be a phone that runs completely Libra software. Well, almost, but we'll get back to that. But it's going to run proper GNU slash Linux, and it's going to run their own Pure OS, but it's also going to be able to run other GNU slash Linux distributions, the major ones like Ubuntu and Fedora.
0: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, there's some fire where there has been smoke for quite a while. Yeah. And they've launched a fundraiser. They have, a, they have quite a big goal of $1.5 million. They've raised 6.43%, as we record right now, about 96,000 US greenbacks. This is also what they say, the world's first IP native mobile handset using end-to-end encrypted decentralized communication, which impressively appears to be powered by the open source Matrix project. Which
1: is absolutely brilliant, as long as the people you want to speak to also use Matrix.
0: This is something I could get behind for just even communicating with team members or family members. Matrix is way more than Slack, so I I do it a disservice by even comparing it. But you get base functionality from there. But Matrix is like a it's like a it's like a connection matrix. Oh look at that! It can connect everything from text to video, audio, files. Uh, it's it's a protocol too, and so it's brilliant to build it into a phone, and I honestly am surprised they're the first to do this. And it it appears to be legitimate cooperation with the Matrix Project too, who seem to be very excited about the possibilities here. And for how much I use the phone, uh, this kind of thing would actually be perfect for me. And the the idea that my phone calls would be safe, secure, and powered by this awesome open-source project running on a free platform, I'm liking these things about it quite a bit. I was
1: a bit worried at first. I thought that was going to be the only way to make phone calls on it, but it is going to have a standard 3G, 4G, Mm -hmm. LTE, that kind of thing. So you can make standard phone calls. You can use standard data on it. And they're going to separate that system on a chip from the CPU, which seems like a lofty ambition to me, but well, what do I know? And if they do that, it means that you can just disable that stuff completely if you just want to use it as a tablet, effectively, a tablet that uses Matrix and Wi-Fi or whatever. So it is basically what we've been dreaming of. Uh, Oh, and also, just
0: casual mention, uh, it's also a convergence device. Yeah. Well, in fact, the Matrix folks as well, you can plug in a keyboard and mouse and screen, so why not? It's got Debian on there. Why not? And in their traditional now Purism trademark move... They've included hardware kill switches for camera, microphone, Wi-Fi, Bluetooth, and the baseband. That might look kind of tacky depending on how it's implemented, but is really appealing. Not even from like a worried about being spied on perspective, but just from a battery saving perspective. Just switch off the baseband, switch off the Bluetooth. That's really nice. Yeah, it sounds like a very hackable little device, but...
1: It's funny that they talk about, well, what happens if we don't make our goal of $1.5 million? They're, they're very, um, I don't know, is it passive-aggressive? The way they say, "Oh well, not, there's obviously not a need for a private phone that respects people's freedoms and stuff like that. And so they're kind of really banking on making this $1.5 million, And I don't know, is there that much interest in this? Ooh, it's only been a few uh-huh. days and they've already raised nearly 100000 but... Mm, I don't know, it seems like a lofty goal to me.
0: 1.5 seems seems really lofty, uh, but it also seems like a more legitimate price of what it would actually cost. Maybe it seems like it would even cost more than that. Um, and the uh, the buy-in levels are rather high too if you want anything of substance. So this is the part I'm concerned about. I'll tell you, Joe, why I would be inclined to back it if I could afford it would be the same reason I originally backed the Librem. Since backing the Librem, I still believe in a laptop that is custom built by an OEM designed for Linux with these kill switches. I think it's just a very nice concept. And I'd love to see a company successful at it. I have that same desire for a mobile device. I'd love to have a mobile device that's essentially the PC of phones, that I can load whatever OS I want, just like I can take my x86 PC and load whatever OS I want. And nothing checks that box right now for me.
1: But $600 for a 5-inch phone that's got no official specs yet, because they're like, ah, oh, we'll work out the specs later. Just give us your money now. I don't know, it's a big risk. As a backup.
0: it is. They, uh, I'll give them. I'll give them this. They've made progress since their initial fundraisers. They've worked on getting their laptops to be as binary blob free as possible. They've made a lot of progress on reverse engineering Intel technologies to facilitate that. And if they say that they'll do the same for the baseband stuff, I have a tendency to believe them because legitimately, they have assigned dedicated resource to reverse engineering this stuff for the laptops and made steady progress. You got to give them credit for that, and I would like to see that if a company came along and did something like this, that they'd also be working on that same thing. And uh, well, Purism seems to have shown they'll be willing to do that if the product is successful. We'll see, though. It's a it's a it's a big risk. Um, I uh, I wonder how much of a stake they have in this. The 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 tone of the fundraiser here leads me to suspect that if this doesn't go well for them we could be looking at them having to make some tough decisions post-fundraiser. Is the, That's what I take from the tone of of the fundraiser here, which is sort of concerning, because that it means one less company working towards this goal. Yeah. Well, I've been very
1: cynical about them in the past, but I do wish them the best. I hope they make it. I'm not going to back it, but I really do hope they make it, and I hope that it proves that there is a need for a proper Linux phone. But in the meantime, let's talk about another Linux operating system for phones, and that is Sailfish. So Yola have had all sorts of problems financially, and their latest scheme, shall we say, to make some money is to port Sailfish to the Xperia X, the Sony phone, and charge people €50 for the ROM. Now, I don't like to think of them as selling a ROM. I like to think of it more as accepting donations or forcing people to donate in order to download it.
0: What's wrong with that? I mean, it's, I think it's great. I think they should be charging 100 bucks.
1: The problem is that it's a development ROM, and you can get development ROMs all over XDA for different operating systems.
0: Oh, sure, yeah. I See, this to me, though, reads differently. I'm reading this as we're starting with this as a base, and then we are going to actually pay people to make it work really good for the Sony Xperia X. So it's like a first-class OS on the Xperia X, as if Sony shipped it running that. So if you look at their current state right now, they are lacking major features. They don't have Bluetooth. They don't support the step counter stuff, the barometer stuff, the fingerprint or the FM radio. There's all kinds of little things that are rough around the edges that they're going to have to sit down and pay somebody to fix for months. So how do, they, how do you afford to do that if you don't charge? Well, I suppose... I suppose. But
1: just for me as a consumer, I don't really have any interest in paying money for something that doesn't work. But I suppose it's mm-hmm. not really aimed at
0: consumers. It's, yeah. Plus, you, st- you still have to buy the phone. doesn't come with a phone, so you have yeah. to get that yourself.
1: <laughs> yeah. I mean, flashing Ubi ports on an old Nexus is one thing and checking it out and, oh, this has got potential and stuff. And then going back to my OnePlus 3T is, is one thing, but committing $50 for a ROM... It's just not something I could ever see myself doing. But they need a revenue stream somehow, and this seems like a reasonable-ish way. I think there are people
0: who will pay it, but it feels very niche to me. Mm, I agree. But um, perhaps it'll, it'll be a sustainable method to development, and you might see one day that it's just a really great ROM for that Xperia X, and you can buy that phone and just have a first-class Sailfish experience. And we'll see. We'll look back at it and go, that was a great approach. Or... It'll just go nowhere, Joe, because I think you're probably right. Seems to me it's a niche, of a niche, of a niche, inside a niche. (laughs) Yeah.
1: Um. All right, well, let's talk about the first class experience you've had with your Nexus 6P over the last few days.
0: Yeah, I I took the plunge for the show, of course, and upgraded the Nexus 6P to Android 8.0, which launched on August 21st. It's Google's Oreo release, and there's... Big changes to notifications, which are the thing I'm most excited about. I don't really know how it's going to play out yet because no applications support these new things. But the big one that matters to me is notification channels and notification grouping of the visual alerts. Those are going to be great features for those of us that are a little sensitive to interruptions by notifications. But there's other nice things in here too, Joe, Uh, but nothing that really jumped out at me immediately as an end user.
1: Yeah, it all seems to be sort of behind-the-scenes stuff, doesn't it? just making things a little bit better, optimizations. um, The autofill API is pretty cool so that um, password managers will be able to speak directly to applications, and that should make security a little bit better. That'll remove Mm -hmm. a bit of a barrier for some people.
0: Yeah, now it'll be easier to use really complicated passwords and password managers when you're you're logging into your apps and websites. That's going to be super nice, if apps update to uh, trigger that. Yeah. I don't know about fingerprint gestures. Now I've finally got a fingerprint reader.
1: It doesn't work all that well, for me at least. So I'm wondering if fingerprint gestures are even going to be a practical thing. And I just can't really envisage how they're going to work. But clearly, some developers have got ideas about that.
0: I have a suspicion that a week or two into using Android 8, I'll have a better idea if their new background limits work. These are more like an iPhone, the way it works with limiting background things. It limits what apps can do in the background in broadcasting on any of your antennas, on the services they can pull on, on how often they can grab, location, and these things, just tampering down on that a bit, could actually make some pretty significant overall improvements in battery life. So I'll I'll probably give you an update on that at some point. If I ever get it on a tablet, I'd probably enjoy the new picture-in-picture mode. They say it works on phones, too, but that's... That sounds kind of nice. So if you're on Telegram you could and watching YouTube video, you could pop out the YouTube video and then go back into a Telegram chat and keep watching the video. So that all sounds kind of nice. But as for the, um, the background
1: limiting, I do worry a little bit about that. Because on the one hand, yeah, it's great for battery optimization. There's no doubt about that. But isn't one of the great things about Android the, the proper multitasking that it can do? You can leave things running in the background that you want to be running. So I think they've got to get the granularity of that right so that some apps that you genuinely want to be running in the background can still do that. Otherwise, you end up with the iPhone, which is, is it fair to say, pseudo-multitasking?
0: Yeah, it's you have certain privileged APIs that can run in the background, and outside of that, your application gets suspended. It does make for better battery life, but you're right. It is one of the things I like about Android, as long as you manage it properly. I don't think most end users do, but I think most geeks and tech users probably manage that pretty yeah. good. Well, maybe I'll get to try it one day once uh, Lineage
1: get the code, which it has been open source now, so I'm sure there'll be a Lineage ROM coming soon. And uh, as soon as I get that, I'll check it out on one of my Nexus devices.
0: I'd be tempted to try that myself. That might be when I switch over to Lineage. I'll say this, the first about hour that I had Android O on my Nexus 6P, it was very sluggish. I think it must have been running some background processes. But then after that, the performance has been pretty great. And overall... One of my smoother Android updates. This a pretty minimal update in terms of what you see. Things just look a little more refined, and the performance seems to be about the same after the first hour or two of the update. LAS.ting.com. la Go there to support this show, keep us going, and get $25 in Ting service credits or $25 off a device over at Ting. Ting is mobile done right. The average Ting bill is just $23 per phone Per month, It's $6 for your baseline and then your usage on top of that. You just pay for what you use. There's no crazy agreements or contracts or early termination fees. They have nationwide coverage, GSM and CDMA to choose from. You just pay for what you use. You want a couple of phones, $6 a line, plus whatever Uncle Sam's cut is in your local neck of the woods. The thing that Ting is really focused on is an incredible user experience, a great control panel, fantastic customer service, and a blog that's constantly updated with useful information. They got the full spectrum of devices from really nice value devices all the way up to the brand new greatest iPhones and Galaxy devices. Also, just grab a Nexus device and bring it over to Ting. They're great. And they have CDMA and GSM support so you can pick whatever works best in your area. Last.ting.com. Okay, let's talk about Chrome
1: OS and their new enterprise edition. Not content with dominating the education market at least in the US, Google have decided they're going to have a go at enterprise now. And it kind of makes sense because the enterprise doesn't really want to move beyond Windows 7 because 8 disaster, 10 mm, don't really like that very much. And so they're going to have this version that has active directory support and is only going to be 50 bucks per year, per device,
0: which, compared to a Windows license, is not very much. Yeah, they're really going after Microsoft here. They're going after Microsoft's bread and butter, because this also comes with the Google Apps which is a direct competitor to Microsoft Office. The offline enterprise features like Active Directory integration means we'll support your existing authorization infrastructure. And this was a classic Microsoft move. They did this to NetWare. Microsoft came in early to try to get Windows Server to take off, and they said, we'll support your NetWare infrastructure. And then eventually everybody moved off of NetWare. This is a brilliant strategy by Google. And if I was Microsoft, I'd be very worried here. Yeah, yeah. It's getting a bit crowded. Of course, Microsoft's focused on perhaps greener pastures. Microsoft and Red Hat have just announced plans to expand an alliance that they've had in place for a few years now. There will be now native support made available for Windows Server containers on Red Hat's OpenShift platform, which is their Kubernetes-based container application platform. Red Hat's OpenShift Dedicated, is what it's called, will be offered also on Azure. Kubernetes. I've always said Kubernetes. I don't know. I've never... I think Kubernetes might be right. Kubernetes is just an old habit of mine. I'm horrible with those kinds of things. Don't follow my pronunciation. Get external verification. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but this cozying up, it looks good from a corporate point of view, but it
1: doesn't look good community-wise, does it?
0: Is that really a thing anymore? Because this is really about running Windows on... GNU slash Linux, isn't it? In fact, the third aspect of this, which is really big to my old school IT ears, is they're also greatly expanding the relationship, quote unquote, <laughs> of the availability of SQL Server on Red Hat Enterprise Linux. Well, yeah, it means that you can either run
1: Red Hat on Windows or Windows on Red Hat and SQL Server on either. Yeah.
0: It's it's like a it's like a bigger higher stakes version of the old deal that they established with Novell back in the day to run SUSE Linux on Windows virtual servers. This is Windows servers for the most part, Windows containers actually, running on Red Hat's OpenShift platform, which is eating a lot of Microsoft's lunch too these days. Well, I suppose if you can't beat them, join them, right? Yeah, absolutely. And it's still a win for Microsoft at the end of the day. If you're spinning up a Red Hat instance on Azure, that's revenue for Microsoft. Yeah. Yeah.
1: But you you downplayed the community thing, but to me, I I seriously think that it just makes people wary of Red Hat and and therefore by extension Fedora. It just makes me think. It just makes me feel a bit dirty. If I was a Fedora user, I'd just like oh, I don't
0: really like that Red Hat are cozying up so much with Microsoft. What about Ubuntu in the Windows Store or Suse in the Windows Store? Does that bother you? A bit, if I'm honest. Yeah. Hmm. I feel like it's just a sign of the times.
1: Things have changed. Yeah, definitely. You just have to accept it, but it doesn't make me feel any happier about it. You know, maybe I'm being a proper neckbeard here, but it's just to me, Red Hat, they've always been the corporate side of Linux. But this to me is just, it really rams that point home and how they're really, I keep using the word cozying up, but that's all I can think of because they're just they're just being so corporate about it and just not caring really about anything but the bottom line here. They're not really caring about freedom and all the storm and stuff. And I suppose they never have. They've always pushed open source and never once talked about free
0: software. But
1: yeah, it just, it doesn't sit right with me.
0: Yeah, fair enough. I, I suppose uh, there's probably a lot of people that feel the way you do. SUSE, uh, they're unperturbed by the expansion of the Red Hat Microsoft deal. Well, so they say. <laughs> yeah, of course. It's funny that they even make a statement about it. Uh, yeah. They they were asked to comment though by IT Wire, and uh, <laughs> they I don't know. It's sort of cagey. They they uh, they were. I guess the question was posed to them: What do you think about Microsoft and Red Hat, quote unquote, cozying up and Red Hat becoming the preferred provider for Linux? And their response was, "I don't see where it says Red Hat is preferred. Perhaps I'm missing something." They're very um, direct, aren't they? Very um, unambiguous. If yeah. it doesn't say that, they also <laughs> tweeted out after that, uh, "What's your toolkit for containers? We've expanded our offering, staying true to #hashtag open source." Yeah, and they talk about being an open source company and all the rest of it. To me, trying to appeal
1: to the community, right? Sending Richard over to OddCamp to tell us all about how everything's open source and really community-driven and all the rest of it. That's the image they're trying to go for, aren't they? They, they want to make money, but they don't want to be seen to be really corporate at
0: the same time. And it's a good distraction from the fact that you totally fumbled the container craze and nobody's using Susa to run all these container platforms.
1: But they're working on it now, Chris. That's the main thing.
0: Yeah, and I shouldn't say nobody, but it's essentially, in terms of market, nobody. Yeah. But either way, they're still going to use BtreeFS or ButterFS, aren't they? Yeah, so people have been wondering what's going to happen now that more distributions are either launching with ZFS support or turning away from ButterFS support like Red Hat, who was a while ago a rather large contributor and is now saying we're going to focus on other things like Project Stratus. SUSE has made a post on the SUSE blog over at SUSE.com, and they say that they're committed to ButterFS as the default file system for SUSE, Linux Enterprise, and beyond. Well, they're nothing
1: if... Stubborn, is that the word for it? They've decided to use ButterFS and
0: they're sticking to it. What, What can you say? Fair play. I am glad somebody is going to continue to support it and invest in it because it does have potential and maybe one day could really be something great for everyone. There's a little insight into the thinking that they have on their blog in this post. They brag about being the number one upstream contributor now to ButterFS. That's sort of like that socially awkward guy who's the last one at a party bragging about how he's the only one still partying. Everyone's left. (laughs) We're all moved on to other things. And now sort of by process of elimination, they're the number one upstream contributor. As they've scaled up their investment and other people have left, like Red Hat and Oracle is dialed way back and Facebook is dialing back, you you, you have essentially independent contributors left. You have Fujitsu. You have Sousa. And in that list, SUSE is obviously the number one contributor, but yet they still make a point to brag about it in the post. And it's funny that they address the
1: issues with ButterFS and say that they still haven't implemented the automatic defragmentation, the in-band deduplication, and the higher RAID levels. And uh, they say, because the quality of these options is not where it ought to be. Which, again, is kind of fair enough, really. That's them saying, look, the, the main bit of ButterFS is fine and enterprise-ready, but there's certain features which we don't think
0: are, and so we're just refusing to right. support them. Yeah, completely reasonable and a safe way to do it. That is good. The, the sentence before that, though, indicates where the cracks are in the surface, because the sentence before that is, and against the demand of some of our partners. We're still refusing to support these things. So their partners, which might be a way of saying customers or people that want to base off of SUSE, want these features. They need these features in production. They're coming to SUSE and saying, ButterFS isn't sufficient for us. So they write this in as demand, as if they're silly, as if their silly business use cases don't really matter. And if they would just calm down and just use the safe ButterFS implementation that the overlords of SUSE have implemented, everything would be fine. (laughs) Yeah. <laughs> that's just – that's sort of a weird way of thinking about it, but I'm – that is a, – it's a harsh way for me to look at this, I suppose, because if I zoom out from this blog post and some of the way it's written, I am overall really glad that a large contributor to open source like SUSE is taking ButterFS under their wing. They're really kind of owning it here with this blog post. And I'm glad someone is owning it, and someone's saying, we're going to stay committed, we're going to keep making it better. That's a good thing for open source. Man, I just can't
1: help but think back to being in college, listening to the Linux Action Show, and you guys talking about how great this new thing was going to be. And here we are all these years later, and you've got one distro using it.
0: Yeah, yeah, it really is something. And there's some hardware out there using it, too. But... Maybe future developments will be pretty great and adoption will take off again. There's one way you can find out. Keep checking out the Linux Action News show every single week. Go to linuxactionnews.com slash subscribe for all the ways to get new episodes of this here show. And linuxactionnews.com slash contact for all the ways to get in touch. You can support the network at our Patreon page, patreon.com slash signal. We'll be back next Monday with our weekly take on the latest Linux and open source news. I'm at Chris LAS. I'm at Joe Ressington. Thank you for joining us and we'll see you next week. See you later.